0: I like things that are different. If you do what everybody expects, you're just doing the ordinary. But if you surprise people, that's fun. I don't really think of the characters as my characters because I came up with the basic idea. But I worked with artists, directors, who added so much to the characters in their direction, and the actors who brought so much it isn't a one man field. It is so many people contribute. I'm just happy that I've had a hand in all of this.
1: My fellow galactic travelers, welcome back to a somber Planet 8. As you're probably already aware of, our dear Stan Lee has passed away. We are having a bonus episode here on Planet 8, and straight away we're going to kick it up to the satellite. Uh, Karen like to talk about stanley um i know you have some words i know bob has but but let's go ahead and start it off with you karen
2: well i i'm sure this is the episode none of us ever wanted to do um indeed you know stan meant a lot to all of us as it as he meant to uh, so many listeners out there um as the sort of uh father figure to so many of us nerds Um, Of course, Marvel has gone on to become this huge empire, this uh, amazing universe uh, that so many people now enjoy. But, of course, back in the day, um, so many of us uh, comics fans uh, were kind of in our our own little world enjoying comics. And Stan was that welcoming figure that um, brought us into uh, the Marvel universe, made us feel like we were a part of something special. Um, And in many ways, um, uh, not only gave us, you know, these great stories and characters, um, but also uh, gave us something to belong to, you know, there's many types of fandom now. But uh, in those early days, uh, you know, Marvel sort of became a home away from home. And even though we know now that a lot of those things, like the Marvel bullpen, was pretty much a a construct of Stan's mind. Um, (laughs) You know, the idea through, like, his soapbox, through the bulletin pages, the letter pages, uh, he kind of created a culture for all of us to belong to. And uh, he also, I think, in a lot of ways, I know for me anyway, uh, helped the stories and and, uh, characters he helped to create reinforced a lot of the beliefs my parents gave me about respecting other people about, you know, personal responsibility and things like that. So, um, certainly, um, you know, he left his mark on, on a lot of us as I'm sure you guys are feeling right now too.
1: Yes, indeed, Karen, you make such good points. I know, um, before we start these podcasts, the three of us kind of have a general discussion on what the episode's going to be about. And, uh, I, I was telling our chief engineer we need to hit the record button because we we started the podcast just amongst ourselves. Bob, you made a great point during that prep time. Could you kind of share that with the audience?
3: Well, um, you know, say what you will about Stan and you know what percentage of each character he created or whatever, but he was the face of Marvel Comics. I don't think any other. Comic book company, let alone many other genre or media companies, had a face. I mean, Walt Disney had right. Walt, mm-hmm. you know, Disney had Walt, but like DC didn't have a face, you know, Harvey didn't have a face, you know, all these other comic companies didn't. So Stan kind of came in and he became your friend, your mentor, your whatever. Be- you know, like Karen mentioned, Stan's soapbox things like that, here's a guy at a comic company that suddenly he's talking to you. You know, this was before the Internet, so you're kind of, Mm -hmm. everybody's sort of isolated. And they're all, you know, maybe they're in, you know, New Hampshire or somewhere, and they don't know if there's anyone else who enjoys this stuff. But here's Stan Lee talking to you like a friend and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, bringing you in all these stories and all these adventures and all these characters and um, you know he basically set the tone and even through his humor he set the tone in the Marvel style whether it was humor or kind of more in depth stories or characters superheroes that had flaws Um, it was more you know it was more personal it's something that you can relate to you know, you're having problems, well, so is Peter Parker, you know. And, uh, you know, you, maybe you don't like the way you look, well, neither did Ben Grimm. So <laughs> it's like, right. you know, there, there's so many characters and so many things that different people can relate to that um, it was totally, a totally and completely new type of concept. And, uh, and Stan right. was definitely the sideshow barker or the <laughs> huckster or whatever you want to call him, because he was the one out there banging the drum and pushing comics and basically bringing them into kind of the mainstream. And uh, I think some of the you know the other comic companies followed suit somewhat, but you know, maybe in style or whatever. And of course, a lot of the writers and artists and creators bopped in between the two companies eventually. But, you know... Right. between Stanley and Jack Kirby and Steve ditko they created a world a whole universe a whole mythology that you know is still around today and you know not many people Absolutely. or groups can can say that you know I mean how many you know I mean DC I guess has a mythology you know Disney maybe but you know you just think of the uh the width and breadth, and number of characters that came out of you know that mindset, and right. uh, and and Stan being there to uh, present them to the world, basically.
1: One of the things uh, you guys made great points. One of the things I enjoyed in um, not just reading the books, but Stan's soapbox is that his writings were inclusive. Um, you know whether you were a teenager, whether you you know Bob made a good point. You didn't like the way you looked. Neither did Ben Grimm. Uh, there's a great Stan's soapbox uh, excerpt here. I'd like to read. Uh, I, I don't remember the the date that this was written, but I know it was back in the day. And Stan says, "Let's say it right on the line. Bigotry and racism are among the deadliest social." ills plaguing the world today. But unlike a team of costumed supervillains, they can't be halted with a punch in the snoot or a zap from a ray gun. The only way to destroy them is to expose them, to reveal them for the insidious evils they really are. The bigot is an unreasoning hater, one who hates blindly, fanatically, indiscriminately. If his hang-up is black men, he hates all black men. If a redhead once offended him, he hates all redheads. If some foreigner beat him to a job, he's down on all foreigners. He hates people he's never seen, people he's never known, with equal intensity, with equal venom. Now we're trying to say it's unreasonable for one human being to bug another. But although anyone has the right to dislike another individual... It's totally irrational, patently insane to condemn an entire race, to despise an entire nation, to vilify an entire region. Sooner or later, we must learn to judge each other on our own merits. Sooner or later, if man is ever to be worthy of his destiny, we must fill our hearts with tolerance, for then and only then will we be truly worthy of the concept that man was created in the image of God, a God who calls us all his children. And I think that rings true today, you know, with human beings, not just man. Um, You know, that could have been written yesterday in the times that we're facing now, but that was written decades ago. And I think Stan just, uh, not only did he believe in it, he he wrote it, you know. And uh, for a kid, I mean, that was just like eye-opening. And it did, like Karen had said. Here's all these concepts and lessons that your parents are teaching you. And he just kind of echoed that and reinforced Mm -hmm.
2: that. Yeah. In
1: such a positive way.
2: That was one of those things that, you know, at the time, it's you're not sitting there and ingesting it and saying, Oh, he's trying to teach me morals or or whatever. But things like that. And then even more subtle things with the incorporation of, you know, black characters into the stories. Um, right. They did stories in the Avengers with, like, the Sons of the Serpents who were, like, a stand-in for the clan, you know, and the mm-hmm. Avengers would take them down. Or, you know, when I first started reading Captain America, it was Captain America and the Falcon. So, to me, it was always like, oh, yeah, these guys work together. They've always worked together. And it mm-hmm. just seemed natural, right? But that was the way, like Bob said, Marvel was kind of ahead of the curve of everybody, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and a big part of that was Stan and Stan's willingness to, you know, take a stand on things like racial justice and equality and, and standing up for things like that. And it, you know, it might not seem like a lot to some people nowadays looking back, but back then that was huge.
1: Right.
3: Well, and keep in mind, too, oh,
1: okay. do, Sorry, Bob, but a lot of it had to do with what part of the country did you live in? You know, what part of the world did you live in and and you know how did that affect those young minds, those readers? Um, it, it just it's phenomenal how many people he touched. And then when people would write back, you know, and I never got a letter published. But imagine if you got one of your letters published and Stan is answering your questions or responding to that. He never talked down to the audience. He always talked to the audience. Even at conventions, if anyone was ever fortunate enough to meet him at a convention and and have a, you know, (laughs) 10-second conversation because the lines are huge, he was that kind of a a person, you know.
2: Well, I have to say um, I was fortunate enough. I I met him a couple of times at conventions. It was relatively brief, but when I was writing um, an article for Back Issue magazine, Mm. on uh, Thor. I was actually writing about Jerry Conway's run. Um, I did, my editor, Michael Urie, had Stanley's email. And uh, because Stan had preceded Jerry, he had written Thor, you know, up until 71 when Jerry took it over. Right. Um, I kind of felt like, well, you know, I should, should I contact him? And Michael encouraged me. So I did email him and he emailed back. And I can tell you that was one of the biggest thrills ever to see Stanley's yeah. email in my inbox. And, again, it was a short email. You know, I'd been told don't ask a lot of questions. He can't remember <laughs> that much from from back then. But he oh, was so still. generous. Yeah, yeah. He, he was very generous, very kind. And you could completely read it in his voice and tell it was him. It was just... Uh, such a a thrill but again, you know, he seemed to always have time for his fans and um, he seemed to really appreciate the fact that people, you know, wanted to talk to him, cared about him, were interested in him and he he was willing to give back and I think that was really another thing that uh, endeared him so much to the rest of us So true
3: Well, I mean, just as a side, I did get a letter in one of the comics in the oh. issue of Iron Man, actually.
2: Oh. Bob, I had but, no
1: idea. Are you serious?
3: Yeah, I even won a no prize. But oh, it wasn't God. Stan. I think it, I think it might have been Jerry Conway that, that answered, that was huh. just know, editor well. on the book at the time. But, um, right. yeah, I think I, this had to be in the 70s, I believe, maybe the late 70s. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, maybe someday I'll have to go dig that out. But um, But, yeah, I mean... Cool. You know, when Marvel was paving the way and doing all this stuff, I mean, you know, this was the turbulent 60s, and, you know, the whole world was going in that direction at the time, and, you know, you had a lot of uh, the counterculture and all the things going on, and so, yeah, Marvel kind of tapped into all that, and uh, and they were not afraid of doing controversy. I mean, was it uh, Harry Osborn was a drug addict at one point.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, that was, was, I think, the first comic that did not have the Comics Code uh, seal of approval or whatever on it. That's right. since before that began. So, um, but I believe it was Stan who said go ahead, you know, because he was editor-in-chief, obviously, at that time, and so he was like, you know, do it. But... um, Yeah. So, and I believe that actually changed some of the standards of the code at that point.
2: But yeah, I think he he had a lot of um, beliefs, strong beliefs about how stories could affect people, and he was willing to take a stand on things like that, whether it was the drug issues or even if you look at um, Amazing Spider-Man, he made an effort to incorporate. African American characters there was Robbie Robertson who was the uh, editor the assistant editor of the Daily google and his son you know it, it was like obvious in so many ways that Marvel was so much more in touch with the times than DC at that point you know the the 60s and early 70s and they were saying hey we're trying to reflect reality here it, it's kind of funny to read some of Stan's statements where he was like well yeah we're doing superheroes and crazy aliens and things but we want it to reflect reality as much as possible but but they did give you that sense that hey this could be your world basically but with these fantastic things happening.
1: Yeah and, and that worked so well and you know there were other creators out there like Gene Roddenberry famously with Star Trek uh, was able to take, you know, the uh, the Cold War and, and instead of calling, you know, Russians Russians or the Soviet Union, it was, you know, this alien race. Stan was able to do that and so well.
3: Well, I think <clears throat> the other thing too is, and I'm trying not to get on Bob's soapbox, but... Um, <laughs> Like nowadays, it's like they're trying to take the characters and that's like and make you know change the characters to force in characters who are black or who are gay or whatever. Whereas back then, Mm -hmm. it was like, okay, we need a black character, let's bring in the falcon, let's bring in Black Panther, let's you know, and they created quality characters that you know happened to be of other races and uh. It, wasn't, it didn't seem forced. It didn't seem like they were trying to push it in that direction just to push it in that direction.
1: Right. You know, growing up in California in the Bay Area uh, back in the early 70s, um, it was a multi-ethnic, uh, multi-racial community, whether it was African-American, Asian-American, Hispanic-American. You know, I'm reading these comic books, And these are my neighbors. It was no big deal. There was no overt push to include uh, this ethnicity or or this character had to be, you know, uh, that ethnicity. It was was story-driven, and the heroes were the heroes, and whether they were mutants or super soldiers or had wings or armor or whatever, that was just part of the story. You know, Ben Grimm, he reverted back to his original form every once in a while, but you know, for all intents and purposes, he's the orange rock guy when I was a kid. I You know, I never looked at, you know, where did he come from? What what ethnicity was he from? I know he was from, you know, the Bronx and, you know, had his its clobbering time. But that was the beauty of these stories. It was, you know, reflective of the world around us. And it wasn't preaching. It was just storytelling. Yeah, I,
2: I think... Um, the other great thing about Stan and and of course the, the rest of the, the bullpen, but I think um, Jerry Conway uh, uh, published a, a little piece on his he has a Tumblr site. And one of the things he brought up, which I thought was a really great point, is that before Stan, uh, most of the comics, almost all the comics did not provide credits. So you didn't know who wrote or drew any of the, the books you were reading. And so Stan, right away with Fantastic Four, you start seeing these credits, you know, written by Smiling Stan Lee, drawn by Jack King Kirby, inked by, you know, Jolton Jose. So you started learning who all these people were. But but not only that, what what Jerry Conway pointed out, which I thought was amazing because uh, I hadn't really thought about it, was that it gave you something to aspire to. He said seeing that at a very early age made him realize, oh, people write these comic books, I could become a comic book writer. Uh And, you know, before that, he would just pick up a comic book, but it just seemed like they sort of were just produced somehow, and he had no idea (laughs) how they were produced. They were just magically there. But then he started learning, like, no, these are the people, and Stan Lee writes this, and Jack Kirby draws this, and Steve Ditko draws this, and so.
1: That's a very good point. I never yeah, thought
2: of that. and well, so then you know all these young guys in the '70s, you start having this whole new crop of right. people who are writing and drawing comics.
3: And not, not only that, but then you find out what a colorist is, or an inker, or right. a letterer, yeah. you know hey, I might right. not be able to draw, but I can write real good. Maybe I can be a letterer. <laughs> you know, maybe I can just go in and color yeah, these true. things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, otherwise you just look at it and figure, okay, somebody does the art, somebody writes it. But there's obviously more you know, to I'm, it than that. I'm sure
1: that. we all heard the, the story about how he came up with Spider-Man and it was you know, uh, last issue of the... Um, Oh, God. Amazing, not fantasy. Amazing, Spence.
2: amazing fantasy.
1: Amazing fantasy. And he had that opportunity, and his wife encouraged him. I just tell your story, and he did it. And that pretty much created, like, this. I mean, all these exciting stories. When I started reading comic books, it was Fantastic Four and Marvel Team Up. Those were my books. And um, these characters were just. So enduring, and, and it's fun now to go to the movies. I mean, these, these movies are like event movies. We all, you know, get in line and talk about it and get excited. Um, It, it would be interesting to see if, you know, he would have ever thought this was going to happen when he first did Spider-Man. I mean, there was a Spider-Man TV show, whether you loved it or hated it. And how many different Spider-Man movies have there been, uh, different actors? What, Tobey Maguire? Three. Uh, three yeah i mean and it's it's still going i mean this is just a great legacy that this person was involved in in this genre you know and it's really taken off
3: well i mean that that's what got me excited because i mean you know we had the superman george reeves and christopher reeves movies and uh and the batman movies you know with the tim burton's batman movies but You know, I was kind of excited for those because I used to watch, you know, Adam West and George Reeves and all that. But when I was growing up and I was reading comics, I was reading Spider-Man, Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Hulk, you know, all that, Avengers. And so now suddenly those movies started coming out, and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, these are all characters I grew up with. These are the characters that, you know, I was intimately knowledgeable of just because... I've read hundreds of issues of their comics. And the fact that they kind of stay pretty true to them, you know, and they're not afraid to put them in their outlandish costumes to a point. Right. You yeah, know, it's it's great. You know, if you would have told me back when I was reading Marvel Comics that a movie where Captain America and Iron Man faced off would totally outgross... A movie with batman and superman facing off i would have told you you were crazy <laughs> it's like what but hey you know marvel's doing it
1: you know and it's interesting to think that you know the, the spider-man i mean not only was it one of the first like relatable superheroes but you know for those of us that were reading it as a as a young adult or teenager or child i mean Peter had real world problems <laughs> along with, you know, trying to figure out what the green goblin was going to do next. And I thought that was just so fun and, and really added to the excitement, you know, on top of that, whether or not aunt May's going to find out his secret identity, you know, and, and what that cost will be.
3: Well, not only that, but you also had Tony Stark who became an alcoholic and had to give up was, being yeah, the iron yeah, man for a, a bottle. Yeah. He had to give yeah. up being iron man for a while i think it was that Rhodey took over for for a bit but um yeah they all definitely had their problems whether it was how do i pay my bills or how do i overcome an addiction or whatever yeah they all had, uh, they all had and their the family dynamics of the
1: fantastic four i mean johnny famously teasing ben and ben losing his temper and reed you know having to stretch the two of them apart and you know, yet when they had to come together as a family or as a team, they did so, you know. Well, you know. The needs of the many outweighed the needs of the few.
2: We have to ask, actually thank Joan Lee for a lot of this.
0: Because mm. At least the
2: way the story goes is that, you know, when Martin Goodman, the, the Marvel publisher, uh, came to Stanley and said, well, you know, DC is doing this Justice League thing, I want you to do a team of superheroes. I mean, Stanley was at a point where he really was seriously considering leaving Marvel, just giving up comics, because he was frustrated. I mean, it's so easy now for us to, we always think of him as such a successful guy, but he was actually a very yeah. frustrated writer. He, this was a guy who wanted to go write the great American novel.
1: Well, it, he was writing, like, romance comics or... or uh, and Western. monster
2: comics and stuff, yeah. And so, you know, he went back home and he told his wife, Joan, you know, ah, you know, Goodman wants me to do this thing and it's just going to be crap and I don't want to do it. And and she did. She told him, you know, well, why don't you write something that you want to read? What's the worst they could do? Fire you? You know, write it the way you want to write it. And So, you know, out of that, that yeah, we got all these characters with problems he wanted to do something different he wanted to do something he would read and i really think like when you look at especially his spider-man and i think spider-man was kind of where his heart really was more than any of the other books it's sort of, true it's sort of soap opera-ish you know but in a good way i mean it's a, on a very personal level you know peter parker like you were saying larry peter parker deals with so many things we can all relate to you know he' There's a guy, he's trying to go to school, get good grades. He's got to take care of his aunt. He's really interested in this girl. And then, oh, my God, the rhino's tearing up the city. And, oh, by the way, he broke his arm. And, you know, it's just like, oh, my God, he's got no money. It's all these things you can relate to. But, you know, then you've also got the superhero action in it. So, I mean, it was just stuff you weren't seeing over at DC at the same time. I've gone back now that I'm older and I'm not such a Marvel zombie I go and I'll read like some of the Silver Age DC and it's kind of fun in a quaint way mm-hmm. but it's just like Marvel at the same time was just light years ahead in the character development and the story ideas and just everything it's, uh, it's incredible to compare the two
1: yeah you make a good point I mean um... Apples and oranges. I mean, they're both comic book companies, but the stories were just so drastically different. And and not to poo poo DC. I mean, they were they were doing their thing at the time, but um, and we we mentioned this. I think all of us earlier. that DC had no Stan Lee, you know, and uh, you know, it, it it just it shows. I, I, and don't get me wrong. I love Superman. I mean, Superman is like my hero. But um you know, I have to give respect and props to I, I love the the Spider Man story where he goes to the Fantastic Four, Reed Richards to help him figure out, you know what's going on. Well, know? he
3: goes to join the Fantastic Four and Johnny tells him that he he won't get paid and he's like, Forget <laughs> it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. It, it goes back to the dollars and cents like with the uh, with the wrestling thing.
3: Oh yeah. And well that and like you know, there was that. There was one very early issue too, where uh, where Peter Parker had a cold,
2: mm-hmm. and
3: he got sick. He lost his powers, and he had to go up against right. Doc Ock. And Doc Ock like kicks his butt and pulls off his mask. And instead of like, hey, revealing Spider-Man to the world, it was like, this is just a kid, yeah. you know, and he has no powers. <laughs> this isn't Spider-Man. You know what is this? You know, um, it's a setup. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but, I mean, that's really kind of... See, that's why Superman was never really my big hero. Because he was, like, too strong and too perfect and too whatever. So, you know, you've got Spider-Man, who's not obviously as strong, and he has his problems, and he's got to put a whole lot more effort into trying to figure things out and get things done and whatever. Um
1: Oh well, yeah, absolutely. Spider Man was more relatable. Um,
3: you know, and he was
1: dynamic as a hero. I guess like for me, Superman was like this superhero, you know. Um, and, and Spider Man was like you know, the everyday hero, the you know kinda like when Walker Karen uh, Kieran said, you know, at that point you could become an inker, you could become uh, you know, an artist. You know, if you got bit by a spider you could become Spider Man, but you couldn't be born on, you know, the planet Krypton <laughs> and, and you know, that was kind of my mentality as a kid, you know. I not that I went out of my way to get bit by a spider, but you know, it was it was like more relatable, more real I think to mm-hmm. me than than a Superman.
2: Superman was fun to watch, but you might never you you would never be him.
3: He's not as relatable, basically. Right. right. Apologies to all the Superman fans out there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, but then, you know, Stan, like I said, when when he moved on, uh, you know, had a hand in in, uh, X-Men. And, you know, those characters and those stories and, you know, without getting into this, you know, race war directly. I mean, that's pretty much what these X-Men stories were about.
2: Yeah, there were a lot of allusions to to bigotry, um, even in the early X Men. I mean, obviously, it became pretty much completely openly about that after, uh, like Chris Claremont, took it over later oh, yeah. on. But but yeah, even in those early stories, you can you can see what he's driving at there. But yeah, it's amazing to think that. Um, you know, thinking about Stan as, as the face of Marvel, well, in those early days, especially after, uh, and i been getting the details, but when they got, Martin Goodman got them into a pretty bad distribution setup, and they, they wound up going from like 40 books at one time down to, I think it was around 13 or 14 when they started doing the superhero stuff. So they were really limited, and Stan was you know, writing most of the books. Of course, it was the Marvel method where a lot of times the artist would do the plot and he would just do the script. But still, that's a lot of work. Right. So, you know, his imprint, it's no wonder his imprint was like on all of those those titles, those early titles, those kind of what we think of the foundational titles like Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and Thor Hulk. Hulk. Yeah, Iron Man, all of those books. Daredevil. Um. yeah. Every, I mean, all those really core original characters, their early stories were mostly mostly by him. He had a few guys like Larry Lieber and and uh, oh who who else came in? I mean, Roy Thomas eventually came in, and then that kind of opened the floodgates. But yeah, it was mostly Stan. What can you know? It's it's uh, it's amazing. Again, I use that word over and over with him, but I think it fits.
3: And again, you know, just going beyond the comics, just into pop culture and whatever. It's like, you know, between appearances at comic book conventions and cameos in Marvel movies and whatever. I mean, he's endured. And, you know, generation after generation knows who he is. I mean, look at the even like in the 80s and 90s or whatever where they'd have those Marvel cartoons and he would narrate, mm-hmm. you
2: know.
3: Like Spider-Man and his amazing friends, or the '90s Spider-Man, and uh, you know, or he, you know, even even today, you know, they have the the Marvel cartoons on uh, Disney XD, and Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was in Ultimate Spider-Man where he played a janitor at at their school, (laughs) and he was a recurring (laughs) character, Stan the janitor. So you know, and everybody knows who that's supposed to be. Or who that really is, but um, I think he ended up being a shield agent well, towards you could the tell end. He really
1: but he enjoyed his his work, you know. It, it wasn't work to him; it was a joy. And I think that kind of like it is what we felt a reflection of in in reading or you know watching these cameos of him in in these works.
2: Right? Can you think of like one other comic book? who is known to the general public like that. I mean, there's nobody else that the general public is like, oh, yeah, that guy, I know who he is.
3: Maybe Frank Miller for all right. his eccentric eccentric antics, but, um, mm. yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it's obviously there's... Like a well, yeah, and, I mean, you know, to the general question. public, you know, the general public, don't they don't even know Jack Kirby, let alone, you know, Carmine Infantino right. or any of the other no. you know, artists and, and writers and things right. that, that are on these comics.
1: Very true. Hey, guys, we're coming towards the uh, end of the podcast where we uh, usually do a censor sweep, but I just want to make sure we've captured everything between uh, Bob, Karen, and myself. Any final thoughts, Bob, on uh, Stan Lee? Any last words or comments?
3: Well, I mean, he's definitely going to be missed and from what i heard i guess he had filmed his cameo for captain marvel and he filmed his cameo for avengers 4 and then i guess once we get to spider-man home or spider-man far from home we're going to have a whole lot of marvel movies that stan is not going to be in and that's right. going to that's going to seem weird that's i think when it's going to really hit that, we sat, that we're now living in a world without stan lee
2: yeah, it's, on one hand, you know, you can feel like, well, he lived to see uh, so much of his vision uh, spread through the world and recognized, and, and he enjoyed life clearly so much, except maybe, maybe the last year wasn't so great, but, you know, he, he lived a good life, and he went from, again, you know, a guy who, at like age 39, thinking, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a failure, I'm not, everything's crap And, and then turned it around in, in a way that maybe nobody else ever has So um, Yeah I, I think Stan did good
1: I agree uh, You know, I, I, I agree with both of you guys I'm going to close out my Stanley portion By just telling everyone Excelsior <laughs> hey, uh, <instead laughs> Enough of <said>. have, Yeah <laughs> Instead of having a sensor suite We had another person and passed away that uh, had a big influence on fandom. I'm going to turn it over to our chief engineer, Bob. Can you please uh, Bob, share with us uh, some words? uh...
3: Well, as I've alluded to in a few episodes, um, I am into the Japanese animation, live action, that whole world. And uh, there's one person who basically if it wasn't for him, Japanese animation fandom would be nowhere near what it is today. He started it all. Uh, I'm talking about Fred Patton. Mm. And uh, Fred passed away uh, just, I believe, on the 12th. Or, it's like, yeah, around the 12th. And, uh, yeah, he basically, you know, started like way back. He had a uh, graphic bookshop back in uh, Long Beach, California in 1972 and he was at a WesterCon and uh, that's where he discovered Japanese animation and manga and uh, he was aware of like Astro Boy and Kimba and Speed Racer and all that but he never really knew that those were from Japan until he discovered this so what he did was he started calling the companies in Japan and trying to import all their comics to his shop and things and you know that's where everything started coming over. He also started the Cartoon Fantasy Organization, or the CFO, which was a uh, animation club, Japanese animation club, in 1977 down in Southern California, and it ended up having branches or chapters throughout the country. In fact, uh, Fred was always after us up here in Northern California to start one, and I think we just didn't want to be bothered with you know club rules and things. But, you know, we... Still, you know, that's back, back when we would trade tapes and, you know, he'd provide us with tapes for little cons and stuff that we would do. And we would try to spread the word on uh, anything from Mazinger Z to Gatchaman to whatever. And uh, eventually he went on to, uh, to write and uh, consult on Tekaman the Space Knight, with William Winkler. And after that, he went on to uh, streamline productions with Carl uh, Maychek, who did uh, Robotech, and Jerry Beck, and, you know, between them, they released things like Robot Carnival and Castle Cagliostro and Akira and quite a few of the uh, sort of transitional Japanese films, you know, where you went from the 60s kind of, you know, Speed Racer and Gigantor and things like that, and then started going into more serious type films. And, uh, you know, Fred basically was doing that up through the early 2000s, and then also went on to write numerous, numerous articles on Japanese animation for magazines and newspapers and et cetera. In fact, uh, we did Mark Light Magazine back in. Uh, 89, 90, and he did a couple articles for us. He did one on Gigantor, one on Kimba the White Lion, and uh, he was basically the ambassador for Japanese animation, you know, back in the day, and I think uh, after that, you know, then you started getting companies like Funimation and, and Animigo and all these that would come up and, and start releasing things, but, you know, Fred Patton was one of the pioneers along with Fred Ladd and, you know, Peter Fernandez and all of them. So, uh, you know, it's definitely definitely a loss. And uh, if you're at all into Japanese animation, look up Fred. Take a look. Do, do some Googling for Fred Patton, P-A-T-T-E-N, and uh, learn about the history.
1: Well, rest in peace. Definitely. Um, This uh, brings us to the conclusion of this special episode of Planet 8. Now, this episode is going to come out before our uh, regularly scheduled or semi-scheduled podcast. The next episode is going to deal with some Star Trek episodes uh, that we kind of picked as uh, our favorites, and we'll have a discussion around that. But uh, at this point, this concludes this transmission from Planet 8 as always, we would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website, www.planet8podcast.blogspot.com. And uh, you can take a look at some of our other episodes and uh, comment on today's topic, which was you know, the passing of Stan Lee and, of course, Mr. Patton. Uh, you can also head on over to our Facebook uh, page, I guess, uh Uh, Anyway, it's Planet8Podcast. You can also go on over to uh, Twitter, which is uh, at Planet8Cast. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we look forward to your input and your opinions. Um, We appreciate you listening time and time again. And until next time, this is Planet8, signing off and transmission.
0: I've always felt it would be nice if while enjoying the adventure, if the reader also gets the feeling that we should all be good to each other. And uh, the world is a small place, we only have a short time in it, and we must make it as pleasant for ourselves and for other people as we possibly can. This is Stanley Lee saying, Excelsior!